0: Welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about truth telling on politics and health. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today's truth, we have a youth mental health crisis in this country. And I know the word crisis gets thrown around a lot, but this is a problem that absolutely qualifies as such. Even before the pandemic, teen suicide was on the rise and suicide was the leading cause of death for 13 year olds in America. In 2019, According to the CDC, 18.8% of high school students seriously considered attempting suicide and 8.9% actually attempted suicide. During the pandemic in 2020, the number of teens seeking help for anxiety or depression nearly doubled. I don't think I need to lay too many more statistics on you to convince you that this is actually a crisis, especially because you probably have people in your own life, either children or adults who have significant mental health challenges. Maybe you do too. But we can do something about this. It's not as if there are uncontrollable forces creating these problems. There are reasons, known reasons, why we in the United States generally have higher suicide rates and other indications of poor mental health versus other wealthy nations. We can change the way we all experience life by changing public policy in the United States. In fact, that's the whole premise of this podcast. I also want to say that you can do something about this at the individual level too, and if you need help, don't hesitate to seek it out. And if you're having suicidal thoughts, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. There are people there, 24-7-365, ready to speak to you. I am very excited to speak to our guest today, LaShawn Francis. I told you that we can do something about this, but just in case you didn't believe me, I'm positive that LaShawn will convince you you're going to feel her energy come through your earbuds. She is the Associate Director for Health Collaborations at Children Now, an organization that advances public policy to ensure that all kids, especially kids of color, have access to physical, oral, and mental health care and nutritious food. At Children Now, LaShawn supports their mental health and trauma efforts. And she spoke to me from her home in the Bay Area. Here we go.
1: LaShawn, welcome. Hi, Jake, how are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. I would be better if we were doing better as a, a country, as a state, as a community to do something about the challenges that we're seeing among youth uh, on mental health. And you really see this in a lot of different ways, but perhaps most dramatically uh, when it comes to suicide. You know, if you look at suicide rates here in the United States versus the rest of the world, there is a problem. First of all, in the rest of the the, the um, developed world with this as well but the united states you know sees higher rates of suicide overall and youth suicide than than basically every place else i mean why do you think that is
1: yeah this is a tough question because there there isn't one answer i think it depends largely on the communities we're talking about right and the the unique pressures certain communities face and so suicidality is odd because we know that once one suicide happens in a community, say a school, the likelihood of another suicide happening increases exponentially. So I, I remember here in California, we saw a spate of suicides in one county, and a lot of that snowballed after one suicide And the dominant narrative in that particular county was just about the stressors, the academic stressors and anxiety surrounding school. But we also know that our LGBTQ youth and our queer community are also suffering high levels of suicidality for different reasons around bullying and acceptance and safe places. So I really do think that answer is unique based on the community that we're talking about.
0: This issue of suicide clusters or, you know, the possibility that uh, suicide rates can increase in a sort of copycat-like fashion is really scary, frankly, as as a parent. And I, before I began this interview, I was thinking about my own life and uh, all of the people who I've known who have died by suicide. And it's alarmingly a lot. And I was actually thinking about when I was... Uh, younger, so this is 20 years ago, and, uh, you know all the people back then um, who died this way, the kid across the street, same age as me, um, died by suicide. A short time later, um, a young man, I believe he's in his 20s, two houses down to my right um, also, died that way. Um, uh, an adult white male who was my advisor uh, uh, on our school newspaper, died by suicide. And this is all in the span of, you know, a couple of years. Um, now, did one influence the other? Uh, I, I don't know. I've always suspected that, you know, at the neighborhood level, we went, I mean, these people, these two young men were, you know, 40 yards apart. Um, I, I've always thought that, you know, that was the case. Now, fast forward to today as a parent, you know, I've got um, two young daughters and it freaks me out. On the one hand, I, I you know, I want I, we very forthrightly talk about mental health, and um, even about suicide. But on the other hand, I, am scared to, to talk about it because it's, it's, it's like I know this is illogical, but it's like I don't want to introduce the idea. It's not like it's not like they've never they've never heard about this concept before. But it's this weird cycle where um, we have this problem in this country. Uh, of people dying by suicide, and then it's in the news, and then it's even in pop culture in in, in shows like 13 Reasons Why, and then teens watch that. And I saw one study that showed that that show had an effect on uh, the teen suicide rate, which, again, freaks me the hell out Um, as a parent. um, Is there any way to how do we like address this issue in an open way, but also not perpetuate Uh, this sort of copycat cycle? That's a big question, but I know you can answer it.
1: It's a huge, huge question. And I think that you're right. There is an instinct in all of us to avoid the tough questions, right? But there is a ton of research from the CDC, et cetera, that really tries to teach people the best way to talk about suicide. And a lot of it is, you know, asking questions, asking directly, um, you know, not being afraid to approach the question, thinking about, you know, how it's being received from your young person, from your daughter or or, or whoever. And therapists can help with this as well, right? But The idea is to talk openly, not to panic, to listen, and to allow that kind of emotional expression, not to pass judgment, right? And I think the biggest thing, too, is not leaving our young people alone. I know that's hard. I have six nieces and nephews, and their moods kind of scare me sometimes, particularly when they get into the teenage space. But, you know my siblings and I, we make it a point not to leave them alone, right? Even if we're not necessarily talking, but we're around, we're checking in, we're watching body language, um, we are doing activities together, and we're connecting them with therapists. Like, that is, you know, the first thing that i always say to parents and to caregivers who have young people in their lives is to not be afraid to reach out you are having concerns, or even if you're not having concerns, really getting into this habit of checking in and checking up regardless of where you think your young person is
0: yeah we as a staff did a um, a mental health first aid training which was super useful and one of the things that really stuck with me was that the professional who was doing the training said that if you're in a conversation with somebody and it seems like they might be thinking about dying by suicide to just come out and ask them is this what you're thinking um, and then at that point, you should you know take them directly to help. but it, it's if it's somewhat a, a counterintuitive, but it's it's a thing that I really took away from 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 that training.
1: Yeah, it, it can be jarring. And listen, I get it. I mean, I think, you know, many of us have, ex, have experienced people in our lives who um, have died by suicide, myself included, and it can be very, very jarring. I think there's just also a lot of guilt involved for the living as well that, you know, means that we don't handle these situations well going forward. So really trying to move past feelings. Guilt, feelings of stigma, um, feelings of popularization in media and narratives as well is difficult, but we can do it.
0: Let's talk about the pandemic, which we're fortunately seem to be exiting now. You know, there have been a lot of indicators that people have been experiencing higher levels of stress. Um, there's some um, indication that um, suicides may Uh, have increased in in some places and decreased in others. It's kind of a mixed bag. Um, My my question for you is, did did the pandemic introduce a unique new problem or did it exacerbate existing problems?
1: I think, okay, so there's multiple things happening with the pandemic, right? And so the dominant narrative, and what I mean by that is what you'll see in the New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera, the dominant narrative has been you know young people are suffering because they are in social isolation from their their peers in particular and that age group and that connection is so important for their you know social development at this time and their brain development at this time and that is true that is a fact um what was also happening was we were in a unique space, particularly in 2020, where there was so much racial unrest happening in the world because of things like George Floyd. And we were suffering extreme levels of economic uncertainty because of the pandemic and that people lost their jobs, right? And so this hit groups differently depending on what their status was pre-pandemic. So we know a lot of our low-wage workers and low-income workers who were having you know, trouble financially, those were the youth who were worried about their financial status pre-pandemic, right? So when we, you know, when, when you look at the American Psychiatric Association did a survey of Gen Z about what they were worried about, almost all kids were worried about things like school shootings, unfortunately, the environment, Unfortunately. But only youth of color and youth of a certain income were uniquely concerned about the health of their caregivers, parents or caregivers, their food status, their uh, uh, income status, right? Their housing status. They were uniquely worried about these things that are directly tied to their socioeconomic status. So what that means is if they were worried about that pre-COVID, once the pandemic hit, it exacerbated their fears and their stress levels and the things that they were worried about as well for that group of kids, right? Then you've got our other group and I, I have to mention this group because our child welfare team is really concerned about them. They were the kids who got to leave home every day and home was not a safe place, maybe not a safe place emotionally right? Maybe they weren't validated because of their LGBTQ status. Maybe it was a place where there just wasn't a lot of love and support and they were able to go into the community, into the school and get that support, right? So their mental health is also suffering because of that. But on the flip side, and I like to remind people of this, depending on where you lived, what school you went to was directly related to your emotional wellness and status. So we know from hearing, you know, our youth listening sessions and hearing kids, depending on their situation, they were happy to stay home. They felt more emotionally safe because of bullying, because of school violence, because of these other things that were happening out in the world. It's just a long way for me to say there isn't just one answer to what happened during the pandemic. There were many things happening and colliding at the same time.
0: And so how about when kids are going to go back to school in the fall? I think most places are going to be um, in person. What should we be doing, especially at a policy level, to support kids as they go back?
1: Now, this is a great question and something that we in California are trying to figure out right now. And, you know, I think we need to be clear that we're going to have to do some screening some basic screenings when kids first get back to school to understand where they are emotionally and mentally and see if we can get them or if they need professional help. Many might not need any professional help, but even having a baseline understanding about where kids are is probably the first thing I would do, right? Second thing I would do is really make sure that campuses have a person or two, depending on how big your your school is, who can provide emotional support. Maybe they are a counselor, for example, right, or a social worker, but making sure that those lines are open. The other thing that we can do is think about how our schools are situated, the space of the school to make it more welcoming to kids as they come back, I know a lot of young people I talk to are nervous about coming back to school just because they have been in social isolation for so long. So they're excited to see their friends, but they're nervous because of COVID and you know, going back and what that means. But can we create, you know, a room that has more of a meditation space that's quiet, that is a little bit more welcoming for young people, right? This is not necessarily something schools would ordinarily do, but thinking about how we use the space differently to support kids is going to be very important as well.
0: I know California has a, a large uh, budget surplus this year. And I, I think you all have $40 billion um, to put towards um, mental health or maybe I don't know if it's specifically youth mental health or mental health.
1: It's $4 billion,
0: but yeah. Four, four, sorry. <laughs> uh, I wish it was 40 Yeah, $4 billion. <laughs> um, and in, here in Colorado, we're in a somewhat similar situation. We have this infusion, especially um, from the federal government. Um, and there's been a discussion slash debate um, at the state capitol and other quarters about how best to spend that money to address youth mental health. What do you think, how how should we be making these investments? Do we focus more on prevention? Do we focus on on higher acuity? Do we start doing things we didn't do before? How do we make decisions here?
1: A lot of it is going to depend on how much money you have, right? I mean, for, for California, $4 billion is a lot of money. I think they can do a lot with these dollars. So the first thing that we've been saying is you need to figure out a plan for the fall and not forget that we're currently in a mental health crisis, right? So the temptation has been, I think on the state level, has been to really use the $4 billion for infrastructure building, Right. And ordinarily, as as, as a policy person, I absolutely love infrastructure building, right? Like that is what I want government to do is to make sure that our systems can work for many, many years to come. The problem is the pandemic is a crisis in and of itself, and it brought along a mental health crisis. So we have to respond to that in the same way that we responded to COVID-19. That's my biggest concern is that we will get so far ahead of ourselves investing in the future solely, which we need to do, and forget that there are students who are going to need help and families that are going to need help right now. So that would be the first thing if I had a magic wand is, you know, just the increase of services and the robust network of services. To be deployed immediately to children and families in this moment. And how does
0: substance use cross over with all of this? You know, um, we're so we're both from states where where marijuana is legal, um, and I, I think that we've seen a rise here in, in this state in the use of these high potency products. So this is not—I'm not talking about your standard, you know, joints that you've been used to seeing um, for, for for decades around the country. This is like dabbing and some other like really high-potency stuff that puts you in a state um, that is not just being high it's it, it, it's actually um, caused some people to have um, psychic breaks um, and have long-term problems so that, that's like a new product a new problem that we didn't have even you know a few years ago and then you have you know all sorts of other other drugs um, that we're, I guess you'd say, more used to, including alcohol, which I feel like is a really under-reported and appreciated uh, factor in, in public health generally, but especially on youth. What are you seeing, uh, you know, um, in, in this crossover, and how are how are those habits, um, you know, affecting mental health for kids right now?
1: Oh my goodness! I mean. There's so much to unpack here, and I'm going to try to do it in a succinct way. So the, the first thing is I'm very concerned about vaping and vape pens for young people. And I hate to sound like the uncool older aunt, but the reality is for young people, their brains aren't fully developed yet. And there are a number of substances, you know, from marijuana to what it might be laced with to, you know, tobacco that can really impact their development going forward, right? So, you know, I always tell the young people in my life, listen, you just got to wait until your brain gets to the right size and can do the same right things before you start vaping and, you know, smoking marijuana and doing all these things. Even though it's legal, there's a reason why it's not legal for your age that reason is really, really scientific. So that's a broad comment about my concern there because vaping has just skyrocketed for our young people. It is very popular. And I'm very concerned about what this means for their long-term development. Obviously, adding COVID in, I think it depends. I think a lot of the research is saying it depends on the type of drug. It depends on whether or not they were users prior, et cetera, et cetera but I think the reality is we don't want people navigating stressful situations with the use of drugs. I think that is the bottom line. Because you are stressed, we want want people to find different coping mechanisms than alcohol, than marijuana, than harder drug use, right? That is where we want to be for young people. And the the, the problem is from a policy perspective is – this gets lost because especially on the local level, like city level or county level, there's a lot of judgment still around, around drug use and what that means, right? So we have been even having conversations with schools about their suspension rules for drugs on campus. Obviously we don't think it's a good thing for drugs to be on campus, but what we are saying is what is happening with this child who has drugs and how can we get them help? Because if you suspend them, guess what they're doing at home? More drugs. (laughs) So that's kind of where we are and we're hoping to really advance that discussion.
0: Yeah, the politics of this issue are really interesting because just as you were touching on, we want to keep these products out of the hands of kids. On the other hand, we definitely do not want to Criminalize or unnecessarily uh, introduce a criminal justice angle on the possession of any of these products, and we've worked here in Colorado on all, all of these things, from nicotine vaping to marijuana possession to the possession of other drugs. We do not want to, you know, increase encounters with the criminal justice system. On the one hand, also in the stakeholder politics, it's really, you know, challenging because. When it comes to marijuana, for example, perhaps you see the same thing in California. The marijuana industry um, has become really powerful um, out out here. Um, and when we, for example, pursued legislation this year to address high potency products, it was it was a real fight. Also, you know, I mentioned alcohol. The culture around alcohol is really laissez-faire. I'd say, like, I live in a small town. There's like, I don't know. Uh, two craft distilleries and six craft breweries and everybody takes a lot of pride in in that. And that's cool. I have no problem with that. But alcohol is just regarded as kind of like kind of no big deal um, uh, these days, where if you look at statistically, it drives a a lot of the problems that we see in in public health. So it's, I'm sure if, if I ran a poll right now um, to do a new tax in Colorado on alcohol, it probably wouldn't, wouldn't fare that well. Um, even though it has an outsized impact on public health.
1: Yeah, you know, and and again, it's it's really what happens when young people start drinking before they should, right? And, you know, we do a survey in California, I think that comes out every two years or so, that asks about drinking. And I always tell the parents in my lives, you guys need to pay attention because there are way more sixth graders trying their first you know, drink of alcohol than there should be. So, (laughs) Um, and so that's kind of scary when we see these, you know, personal reported surveys about the age that they're starting to drink um, and how long that lasts. And we know that most kids aren't going to become addicts, but we are concerned about the few who take their first step. And because of the emotional struggles that they're having, and we know that substance abuse and mental health concerns are very strongly related and as, as a co-occurring disorder. And we want to be able to mitigate that. We want to make sure again, that you're not using alcohol and drugs to figure out how to mitigate pain.
0: LaShawn, this has been, you've made like a really, you know, kind of sad and distressing topic um, fun, if you will, uh, for for this podcast. And I sincerely appreciate your time.
1: No, thank you so much, Jake. I'm, I'm really interested in this conversation and I hope that we can connect again soon.
0: Thanks again to LaShawn Francis. You can check out more about her work at childrennow.org. I'm working on creating a creative episode for you all coming up next. Stay tuned and please rate this podcast and subscribe. It helps us immensely. I'll see ya.